Literary Anything, our Marian Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome to February. Here's our February podcast. Full disclosure, we are recording ahead of time, <laughs> so we might be doing a few little things different this month because yeah, of that. We're pretending we're in the future. Yes. Yeah. And so literary news will not be news anymore, so we'll do something a little different. Yeah. Yeah. In that Sounds section. good. This month we read The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. Yes. I've got the blurb. Great. I was supposed to be having the time of my life. The Bell Jar, Sylvia Plath's only novel, was originally published in 1963 under the pseudonym Victoria Lucas. The novel is partially based on Plath's own life and has become a modern classic. Celebrated for its darkly funny and razor-sharp portrait of a society which refuses to take women's aspirations seriously, it has sold millions of copies worldwide. Yeah, it's a big... It's classic big, we're it taking is a big on. Classic, that's right. Yeah, someone's so, asked us to do a classic, and this is this what we've is what chosen. We've done. Yep. yep. Sylvia was born in Boston, Massachusetts. She studied at Smith College and Newham College in Cambridge, England. She married fellow poet Ted Hughes in 1956, and they lived together in the United States and then in England. Their relationship is famously tumultuous and. In her letters, she alleges abuse at Ted Hughes's hands. Mm. They had two children before separating in 1962. Sylvia Plath was clinically depressed for most of her adult life and was treated multiple times with electroconvulsive therapy. And she died by suicide a month after The Bell Jar was published in 1963. As you mentioned from the blurb, it was originally published under a pseudonym in 1963. It's semi-autobiographical with names and places changed. This is, of course, also the only novel that she ever published. Her other publications are works of poetry, most notably The Colossus and Other Poems, published in 1960, and Ariel, published posthumously in 1965. Many years after her death, in 1982, she won the Pulitzer Prize Mm. for her book, The Collected Poems, which was published the year prior. As we mentioned, this was published under a pseudonym to begin with, but then it was uh, republished under under the name Sylvia Plath for the first time in 1967, and it was not published in the United States until 1971, as per the wishes of both Plath's ex-husband, Ted Hughes, and her mother. And it's been translated into almost a dozen languages. I'm pretty sure there's a movie in the 70s. I haven't seen that. And, of course, Sylvia Plath is a almost mythological literary figure nowadays. Yeah. So that's a little, a quick overview. There's lots and lots has been written about her relationship with Ted Hughes and their very off-and-on-again relationship. Sadly, her one of her children, her son died by suicide in the 90s and her daughter Frida is a artist and poet right. and writer and she's written lots of children's books and is still alive. Right. So that's a little quickie overview. Um, I thought because this is a classic we might do something completely different this mm-hmm. month. I've got some book club discussion questions right. here sure. and I thought we could s- discuss it that way. That sounds good. Before we jump into the questions, can I talk a little bit about the role the bell jar plays in our culture? Yes, a little please. bit. So I'll link some of these articles in the show notes because I read lots about the bell jar. And even if you haven't read the bell jar, there's certain connotations that come to mind when you think of this book and also Sylvia Plath. Mm. The bell jar is fairly synonymous with 
teenage girl angst. It's often been written off as nothing more than a sort of dramatic teen girl piece of fiction. It's been used as a prop in movies and TV shows to represent a certain type of girl. That's interesting because I hadn't read it until just now. And the one reference that sticks out in my head was one of my favourite movies is Reality Bites. Oh, yes. And at one point when Winona Ryder's character is just like moping around and can't do anything and Janine Garofalo's character says to her, you are in the bell jar. That's right. (laughs) That's what it makes me think of. Exactly. So there's lots of movies and TV shows that reference it. So Cat Stratford in 10 Things I Hate About You. It's referenced in The Gilmore Girls, The Simpsons, Heathers. It's almost like a rite of passage book, isn't it? That that a girl of a certain type will identify with and read and therefore it's attached to symbolise in movies and things, if it's lying on the character's bedside table, it gives you an impression of the kind of person that character is. Yeah, and that's funny because even Mm. today, I said to my daughter yesterday that we were doing this book, and right away she said, oh, so-and-so, this friend of hers read that book. So it continues today. Yes, it fascinates me. Okay, so the first question is, what factors, components, and stages of Esther Greenwood's descent into depression and madness are specified? How inevitable is that descent? I know, it's a bit high school (laughs) essay question. I'll start my dissertation now. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I guess it starts with her getting that award to work at the magazine. And things seem fairly okay at that point. But Mm -hmm. then they all get food poisoning. Yes. I feel like things just go downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah, they all get food poisoning. And then the night before she is due to go home, she goes on a ill-fated date with a friend of Lenny Shepard's and is sexually assaulted and I think that was a piece of the puzzle that sort of pushed her over the edge perhaps. And then she goes home Mm -hmm. and she's highly anticipating that when she gets home she's going to have this acceptance letter into this writing program that she is really looking forward to. Yeah she's just made an assumption that she will get into this program. And then her mother picks her up and says by the way you didn't get that. Yeah. So that's another... Yeah, and then it's very rapidly downhill from there. And one of the things that I think lots of people talk about is the matter-of-fact way in which she is trying to kill herself. Mm. She's very matter-of-fact about the ways in which she tries to die. Yeah, she's Mm. just looking for how she can do it. Can she get a gun? Can she jump off a bridge? Can she do this? Can Can she she drown herself? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Mm. the madness? Is the madness the idea that you are trying to look for ways of killing yourself in such a matter of fact way? I read more madness, I guess, if if we want to call it that, in uh, some of her interactions and some of her thought processes about people like Dodo, the neighbour with all the kids, and she watches her out the window and she has really... (laughs) deep critical thoughts about Dodo and what she represents Mm. and how much she doesn't want that. Part of her decline into mental illness to me seems to be the expectation of what her life needs to look like and how much she doesn't want that suburban wife, mother life. And I guess the letter telling her that she didn't get into the writing program possibly makes her think that this is the direction I need to go into. That trajectory for me is closed now. And so now my only other option is wife and mother. Yeah. And I found it disturbing that she was away from mother when she wrote this. Yeah. Did you think that as well? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I did. I found that interesting. Yeah. And so the other question was, how inevitable is this descent for her? 
I feel like it was inevitable. Yeah, so do I. Mm. With the personality that Plath had and her ambitions, mm. the way her life had been shaped, because she was so driven, she, I said Plath, but sorry, I meant Esther, Esther Greenwood. <laughs> she was so driven mm. to get good grades and do all of this, and then the, the patriarchy, the environment yes. that she's growing up in is saying, well, yeah, that's great that you did all that, but now mm. you become a wife and mother. Yeah. And she just felt trapped. Yeah. There's a nice piece of imagery in this book. I think it's while she's in New York still. She talks about a fig tree. Oh, I, And yeah. she's lying underneath the fig tree and each fig represents a different life. So there's a fig that represents being a mother or a wife or a famous academic poet. But one chosen means to lose all the other figs. You can't have all of them. You can only choose one. And she's sitting there withering under the tree of all these choices while the figs start to decay and eventually drop into a messy, spoilt fruit underneath the tree all this time while she's waiting to try and make a choice which she can't. Yeah, it's obvious that Plath is a poet. Yes. First and foremost, because yeah. the prose is beautiful and the imagery is beautiful, as you say. I liked that representation and I don't think that's out of place in... 2022 either. No, I would agree. What I would like to know is, did you read this as a piece of historical fiction or did you read this as a contemporary fiction novel? This is what interests me. It was published in 1962, but it was set in 1953. And there's a lot of cultural references within this book, which I really enjoyed. So I tried to read it as if I was of the time. I very much liked the cultural references such as the execution of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. I think they were executed in 1953. Yeah, that's right. Famously convicted of spying for the Soviet Union right in the middle of the Cold War. They were the only US citizens executed for espionage in the US during that time. So there's lots of those sort of things, the food, people smoking, the clothes. Obviously, I wasn't around in the 50s, but the dialogue rang true to me. Some of the phrasing and the names like Betsy yes, and JC and Buddy Willard. <laughs> I, I wondered if this is the equivalent of reading maybe a Sally Rooney book now. Sally Rooney is very divisive. It's for people of a certain age. It's a contemporary piece of fiction that often deals with mental illness and mm. very cerebral type characters. Is this like reading that in the 50s? <sighs> That's so hard to say because I think what frustrates me about Sally Rooney's characters is how immature they seem. Mm. Whereas mm. I don't feel that these characters are immature necessarily. No, but I know at the time there was a little bit of dismissiveness about this book yes. because it's just teen girl stuff. And I think initially after mm. it was published, yes. before Plath died, that would have been the reception that she knew of. Will people read Sally Rooney in 60 years' time? and have a conversation like we are about Sylvia Plath. I mean, I, I think you know. know what I would say <laughs> to that. <laughs> it's funny you say about the, the cultural references, like the names and then mm, the food. Yeah. Uh, this is a complete aside, but I follow this TikTok where this girl has this old-fashioned 50s cookbook and she makes oh, things that sounds out great. of the cookbook. It's hilarious because everything is like that crab dish that they actually yes, got the food poisoning the from. Crab. It's mayonnaise yes, and, creamy and olives. Things. <laughs> making shapes out of cheese. <laughs> I really, yeah, I very much enjoyed 
when they were in New York, you know, the hats and the gloves and the shoes and it made me think of of Mad Men. Yes. I quite liked that, but I didn't get stuck in those details so much that I couldn't see the bigger picture of the story and Esther. I found it difficult to, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, Mm. but knowing the inevitable outcome of the author. Yeah. It just put a sort of it layers something over the top cloud of, yeah over the whole thing especially because y- they say it's semi autobiographical from what i've read it's like hugely largely mm. autobiographical well yeah and i know that sylvia plath's mother was quite reluctant for it to be released in the us and that's why it did take a little bit of time mm. because she was resistant to it because she knew that it would be so obvious who the people were she changed names but if you know, you know. Yeah, I read yeah. something that said that the people that were at that magazine mm. award thing, that it was so obvious who was who, yeah. that it yeah, upset a lot of people and uh, caused relationship breakdowns mm. based yeah. off of what she wrote. Yeah. Another question, in a letter while at college, Plath wrote that, I've gone around for most of my life as in the rarefied atmosphere under a bell jar. Is this the primary meaning of the novel's titular bell jar? What other meanings does the bell jar have? I did look up what the reference to the bell jar is. And well, I, I looked it, it up. I, it says a bell jar is a scientific device which encloses a space and draws the air out of it. Mm. So you could look at it as, you know, it's a rarefied air, but it's also a suffocating air. The only air that's in there is what already exists, isn't it? So there's nothing new coming in or out. And you definitely get a sense of that through the book that she's limited in what her life can be or limited to the bell jar of choices and experiences that a woman in the 50s can have that are appropriate from a societal point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I would look at it like that as well. What terms does Esther use to describe herself? How does she compare or contrast herself with Doreen and others in New York City or with Joan and other patients in the hospital? You you certainly get the juxtaposition of Doreen and Betsy, for example, when she's in New York. Betsy's the ultimate on a pedestal. This is what we should be aspiring to be like, whereas Doreen's the one that could be called a loose woman Mm. who dates and wears revealing things and is a little uncouth, which Doreen is probably the more norm nowadays, Mm. whereas Betsy's the uptight twin set wearing (laughs) goody-goody. Yes. Which I assume of the 50s is what you'd be aspiring to. And and Esther kind of vacillates back and forth between who she wants to align herself with. So at the beginning, she's Mm. sort of more with Doreen. And then Doreen goes off with that guy and drinks too much and gets sick. And by the way, wasn't that awful? How she just like, Doreen gets sick and comes back to the hotel and Mm. there's somebody helping her to... Esther's room and then leaves her with Esther so Esther can take care of her and then Esther leaves her in the hallway in her vomit outside of the room. (laughs) It's almost like she's disgusted by Doreen and has made a decision that she's not a part of that now. Yes and then she Mm. decides oh no I want to hang out more with Betsy. Yeah yeah that's right but then that doesn't quite fit either. Mm. She doesn't know who she wants to be yet. That's right yeah. Which is the whole point of all of it yeah. And the point of your 20s, I think, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just, yeah, all over the place That's in their right. 20s. Trying to figure it out. 
Are Esther's attitudes toward men, sex, and marriage peculiar to herself? What role do her attitudes play in her breakdown? What are we told about her society's expectations regarding men and women, sexuality, and relationships? Have those expectations changed since that time? Those are great Mm, questions. That's a good question. It was so interesting to read about her description of her feelings towards things like having a baby and being pregnant and it really highlighted the weight that came with accidental pregnancy during this time yeah and this is a bit of an aside like historically how truly revolutionary easily accessible contraception would have been around the 60s when it sort of came out but in the 50s it wasn't around so accidentally getting pregnant meant a very That's narrow it. choice of options really so that bit was really interesting to me and so she was very clear in relation to sex that weighed heavily on Esther and probably most women of the time Mm. that this is something that could happen to me and I thought it was interesting when she has that conversation with Buddy she Mm. thinks that she and Buddy are both virgins and then they're going to get married and she's really into Buddy at the beginning Mm. and then she talks to Buddy and questions him and finds out that actually Buddy is not a virgin he's had sex already with this waitress somewhere and from then on she labels him a hypocrite yeah and I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Because he never said, I'm a virgin. No, there was an assumption made. I guess there was an assumption, but it's interesting that she labelled him a, a hypocrite just based off of her assumption that he was a virgin. Yeah, I, I quite appreciated that bit because I think women of that time, you had to preserve your purity and all of that sort of stuff. And I guess she was naive enough to think that everybody did. Right. And what you were saying before about contraception. So eventually Mm. she does get fitted. They don't say with a diaphragm, I don't think, but I think the assumption is it's with a diaphragm. I assumed as much as well, yeah. And then she decides from then on, Mm. she doesn't have the risk of pregnancy. There's no... Real talk of STIs, I don't think, are there? No, I don't. No, there wouldn't have been. I guess, yeah. yeah. So it's all just about getting pregnant. And yes. once she knows that she um, cannot get pregnant because she's been fitted with this contraceptive mm. device, then she's wanting to get rid of her virginity. Yeah. And she wants to do it fast and she wants to do it with somebody that she doesn't really know and will never see again. Yeah. Yeah. So that was an interesting dichotomy. And she talks about how she's been preserving this thing, Mm. her virginity. For the past five years, she's been like fighting to to keep it intact, quote unquote. And now she's like, I'm ready to... Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then I found that what happens after that really confusing. She does have sex, but it results in this traumatic hemorrhaging that's right. And she has to go to the hospital. She's got towels down there. And then the doctor That's says, right. oh, you're one in a million that this would happen to. And mm. she says, can you fix it? And he says, yeah, I can fix it. And then that was the end of that scene. And I was yeah. confused. Yeah. I didn't understand <laughs> that. Right. And then she goes back to him and says, you have to pay my hospital bill. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty ballsy. It is ballsy. It? Yeah. Of the time. Mm. I appreciated her as a character. Mm. A lot of the time. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about American suburbia? Please. So this is something that I enjoy in books. Do you remember, was it this year or last year, I read that book, The Long, Long Afternoon, and it was that sort of pulpy crime book and it had that 50s picture on the front. Oh, yes. Yeah. I really like the way American suburbia, particularly in 50s, often is portrayed. There's always this like dark undercurrent mm. and... 
it made me think of movies like Edward Scissorhands. Oh, yes. Or The Stepford Wives or The Truman Show mm. or The Virgin Suicides. Which yes, is they a, all have that look to them. Yeah, they've got that perfect veneer but then there's this very dark undercurrent of the perfection. And there's this really great quote that I loved so much in the book from Esther when she just gets back to her mum's house in the suburbs and I think she's out there she's looking at Dodo with her millions of kids walking down the street and not very happy to be home it smelt of lawn sprinklers and station wagons and tennis rackets and dogs and babies a summer calm laid its soothing hand over everything like death yeah isn't that perfect I thought that was such the the perfect quote to encapsulate American suburbia you can almost feel the quiet summer vibe and to encapsulate how well she is able to mm. use analogy to yeah. create just the perfect yeah the uh, setting the scene setting yeah. the scene yeah what part do you think the ideal american suburbia played in the novel I think American suburbia is the bell jar yeah. or certainly part of it. Yeah, that suffocating feeling of this is all contained and this is all that it will ever be. And you can't escape from yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I've heard this compared to The Catcher in the Rye, like yes. the female version of yes. the, the Catcher in the Rye. I don't know if I've I necessarily read, I've not agree. not Catcher uh, in the Rye. It's interesting because I enjoyed the prose in this book very mm-hmm. much because of things like what you've yeah. just read. Mm-hmm. But... Knowing what I know about Sylvia Plath, I just find that cast a pallor over my whole reading of this book where I read Catcher in the Rye when I was in my 20s and I didn't have any of that same sort of cloud of depression over top of it. And I was just consumed with the voice of Holden Caulfield. Mm. I'd I'd never read anything that rang so true in terms of a character. I I can't really compare them because I read them both at two completely different times in my life. I very much enjoyed it and I didn't find the mythology of Sylvia Plath to sway me too much out of the story. I will also say that I listened to this as an audio book and it was read by Maggie Gyllenhaal. That would be great. It was fantastic and I think I enjoyed it so much more for reading in that format. Mm. Maggie Gyllenhaal's got a very particular type of voice. She was so well able to portray these characters at the time in the 50s and it it felt historical almost Mm. listening to it which is why when I read the names I read them in an American accent because (laughs) she was so good with the the dialogue as well within the book I have read it as a teenager as an actual book Mm. and I think I mentioned this last month that it just went straight over my head. I was way too young and I was obviously reading it because I was that sort of a teenage girl that was like, oh, I'm going to read Sylvia Plath now, you know. <laughs> I don't think you use that kind of a teenage <laughs> I was so girl much day. like that. So cringy. <laughs> but now as an adult reading it, I could appreciate its nuances much, much more. It's so autobiographical that there's not really a plot. It's almost like mm. she just wrote about these things that yeah. actually did happen to her in her yeah. life. And she wrote about it in a beautiful way. Mm. But I wonder if Sylvia Plath hadn't died a month after this came out. I wonder what the cultural significance of this book would be. Yeah, absolutely. With what specific setting, event and person is Esther's first thought of suicide associated and why? In what circumstances do subsequent thoughts and plans concerning suicide occur? know if I know when she first thinks of it is it when her mother tells her that she didn't get into that program 
I would say that her first ideation with death is right at the very beginning of the book when she talks about the electrocution of the Rosenbergs and she imagines being electrocuted and how that must feel and what an awful way to die that would be. So that sort of set the tone for death to be a presence throughout the book. Right. The electrocution of the Rosenbergs also probably references the electroconvulsive therapy that Esther experiences once she goes into uh, the treatment facilities and she experiences that a couple of times. Mm. So I would say that death and suicide is present from the very first page. Well, neither of us have read much else this month because as we said full disclosure we just recorded the other one like four days ago so (laughs) except that i did stay up reading good morning monster that jane just talked about last month yeah pretty much could not put it down Mm. like had it with me for 24 hours straight yeah even while my family and i were sitting in our front room watching tv but i like had my book because i just could not yeah put it down and I would agree with everything you said last month about it and also would agree that we could not have talked about this as a podcast book no. because it is so... It was hard to explain until you'd read it. It's, it's almost like when we try and talk about short stories as well, it's a bit hard to talk about it a whole book when it's very uh, segmented. segmented like that as well. Uh, sure, I should just say again that this is a book that is non-fiction. It's a Canadian psychotherapist that shares five heroic stories of emotional recovery. And I think how this book can work is the fact that, like you said, all of them are stories of people triumphing in the end. Yeah, over the most horrific experiences that you could imagine, really. And I think that were it for one particular story, I think we probably could have talked about it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. One of these stories made me cry. Yes. Which one was it for you? It was the one where her mother died and she was abused by her father. Oh, okay. That was the one I would say, but for that story, we could have talked about it. Yeah, I think it was Alana, wasn't it? The abuse was just so horrific. Yeah, just awful. The one was really sad. I thought the Danny was really, really sad the one that was taken from his parents, similar to our Australian stolen generation. The same sort of cultural cleansing happened in Canada in the past as well and not the distance past either. That was really sad and was very relevant to what our country's Aboriginal people have felt, that generational trauma and things like that. For some reason it was the story of Peter who was the boy who... His mother kept him in the attic yeah, to keep him safe. That's right. He just spent every single day. Oh, he was friends his, with his piano. And he was friends with that his was piano. That was so sad. And then something happened to the piano at one point. And his I think mother threw it out the window. And that's when I cried. Yeah. I was like, this poor boy has attached himself to this little piano because yeah. it's the only thing that he has had in his life for years and years and years. And then she throws it out the window. Awful. I want to emphasize the fact that it is a hopeful book. Yes, and that more than one of the patients that she treats says that had they to do it over, they wouldn't have changed anything Mm. because particularly in the case of Peter, he ends up becoming an accomplished musician. When they write about him in articles about his ability to like get emotion out of an instrument and he feels that that wouldn't have happened if he weren't trapped by himself with his piano yeah. for years and years. Mm. <sighs> it's a full-on book, isn't it? Well worth reading if you think you can cope with it. 
Yes. <laughs> now, we've got no news because we're in the past. No, we're talking <laughs> in the future. <laughs> but, Jane, we do have a listener question. Do we? We do. How exciting. Is it, a, is it an audio one? Yes, it is. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, here we go. What's a moment in a book that lives rent-free in your head right now because of how disturbing or odd it is? Mm. Isn't that a good question? That's a great question. <laughs> Thank you, listener. Let me have a think. I've got something. Oh, yeah? Go on Yeah, then. It's a short story by mm-hmm. Stephen King that oh, I read yeah. when I was in my 20s, and it seriously has been living rent-free in my head since then. And so much so that I've told both of my children about it, and now both of my children have read the story, and now it's living rent-free in their heads too. <laughs> and it's the story called The Jaunt. It's about a teleportation system, and this scientist puts people through this teleportation system, and for some reason, when they go through when they come out the other side, they either die immediately or they have a nervous breakdown and then die shortly thereafter. So what the scientist determines is that in order for anybody to go through this teleportation system, they have to be unconscious. So they have to give them drugs to go through. And then when they come out the other side, they're okay. But then they have this prisoner who agrees to go through conscious. And when he comes out the other side, he says, it's eternity in there. And then he dies. And what they figure out is that even though when they go through this teleportation system, it's only like a blink of an eye to us, to the person that's going through, it's like a billion years of just white. And that's it. So the whole thing is a father telling his children about this because they're about to go through this jaunt. And then when they go through it and they get to the other side, the father realizes that his adventurous son has decided to hold his breath and not take in the agent that's going to render him unconscious. And so when he comes out the other side, he says, it's longer than you think. And he scratches his eyes out and dies. (laughs) What I just find so crazy about it is the idea that there's no monsters, Mm. there's no blood, there's no gore. Mm. What's scary about white? Yeah. But nothing but white for a billion years that you cannot escape from. (laughs) It it just, I I still can't fathom how disturbing that is and how Stephen King came up with it. Mm. He is of that persuasion though, isn't he? He is, he is. He's a master. Um, Some things... Not particular scenes necessarily, but whole books that disturbed me. One would be, we need to talk about Kevin. That Mm. disturbed me start to finish. As you know, that's one of both of our favourite books. It's more vibes of books that disturb me more than anything. Have you read The Virgin Suicides? This is the second time I've referenced that today, which is (laughs) so funny. By Jeffrey Eugenides, that's Mm. another American suburban atmospheric book that has got this really awful undercurrent of strangeness. Mm. Uh, And another one that actually disturbed me so much that I couldn't finish the whole book was The Road by Cormac McCarthy Mm. when they ate the baby on the spit roast. Jeez, I don't even remember that. Awful. That's that's so hideous to me. And the whole book was so upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just didn't get any better. It was mm. miserable, but not Mis- in a, the Belgia kind of miserable, but like straight up dystopian hideousness. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a short story about a woman who's 
husband dies and then she sends off, I think, his DNA or his body to this new place and they clone him, essentially. And then he arrives back, but he's kind of a robot, but not really. It's just his body. Do you remember this story? Yes. And then eventually, and she had a child and just pretended that that was the dad, but they just, she kept him in the attic. Do you remember that? And he would just sit there. Do you remember? Yes, but I can't remember. And so he just lived in the attic, but because he didn't need to be fed or eat or it was just this kind of robot person clone that lived in the attic. That kind of reminds me of Ian Reid's other book that he wrote, other than I'm thinking of mm. ending things. It's, that's a bit like that. Yeah, do you remember? I can't remember what book it was from, but I know that we've talked about it <laughs> and I know anybody, we were disturbed. If <laughs> anybody remembers what book that was, I feel like maybe it was Smart Ovens. Because the only other short story anthology we read was Certain American Stories oh, yeah. by it Catherine Lacey. It wasn't in that, was I it? I don't think so. I'm going to try and okay. Google that somehow because <laughs> that's what we do here at the library <laughs> and I'm going to try and remember what that book was but that that's one particular scene I just can imagine this cloned robot person just sitting in the attic waiting for someone to come and talk to them that and sounds it's kind of sad but creepy, creepy. Mm. yeah <laughs> thanks for that question <laughs> now shall I talk quickly about what's coming out in February. I've got a few, so I'm going to whip through them. This one is a debut novel. It comes out in February. It's called The Keepers by Al Campbell. It's an Australian author. It's published by University of Queensland Press. The Keepers is an impressive semi-autobiographical debut novel about a mother struggling to protect her two disabled sons, one whose health is failing and her battles with social services while she's increasingly haunted by her own childhood. Gothic in style and suffused with elements from the supernatural and magical realism, your favourite thing. (laughs) You had me until then. (laughs) The Keepers examines the damage done by parents who can't love and by a community that only claims to care. So this sounds quite topical at the moment. Sounds hard going. Given how our country ravaged by COVID and people who with disabilities having so much difficulty accessing services. Maybe not for you, Paula, with the magical (laughs) realism in it. This one is called The Maid by Nita Prose. The rights have been sold across 29 territories. It's one of BuzzFeed's highly anticipated book talk reads in 2022. Have you heard of this one? Yes, I keep seeing that. I thought you might have because Paula's... All over the old book talk <laughs> reads. This has also had the film rights already been bought by Universal with Florence Pugh, who is in Hawkeye, set to star as the title character. Molly is the maid, all alone in the world and nobody. She's used to being invisible in her job at the Regency Grand Hotel, plumping pillows and wiping away grime, dust and secrets of the guests passing through. She's just a maid, why would anyone take notice? But Molly is thrown into the spotlight when she discovers an infamous guest, Mr Black, very dead in his bed. This isn't a mess that can be easily cleaned up. And as Molly becomes embroiled in the hunt for the truth, following the clues whispered in the hallways of the Regency Grand, she discovers a power she never knew was there. She's just a maid, but what can she see that others overlook? Escapist, charming, and introducing a truly original heroine. Mm. Sounds kind of... I can see why yeah. that's caught everybody's attention. It sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? I've chosen, f- other than one of them, 
lightish type books because I feel like that's what we want at the moment. That first one wasn't lightish though. No, that wasn't lightish. <laughs> okay, now we're Everything getting some. Else is <laughs> now we're getting some lightness. Okay. Love and other puzzles by Kimberly Allsop. Rory's life is perfectly predictable, ordered and on track, just the way she likes it. She walks her twelve thousand steps a day, writes her to do list, and each night she repa- prepares her breakfast cheer pods and lays out her clothes for the next day (laughs) she's doing everything right so why does everything feel so wrong deep down she knows her life and career not to mention her relationship are going nowhere and so rory in a moment of desperation takes an uncharacteristic step letting the clues of the new york times crossword puzzle dictate all her decisions for a week just for a week she reasons just to shake things up a bit what's the worst that could happen oh my gosh I don't know if that sounds light that sounds like it could be well then it says a delightfully witty deliciously original and astringently refreshing (laughs) rom-com that reads like you're inhaling a zingy citrus cocktail made by Nora Ephron at a party thrown by Dolly Alderton and Beth O'Leary wow (laughs) Wow. Okay. That last I mean, bit puts a bit of a lighter spin on the it, whole it thing. It does. I mean, getting your uh, life advice from crossword puzzle yeah. clues kind of screams beautiful mind at me. It, uh, well, it screams, loath to say it, it screams chick lit to me, which Jane's might be favorite nice. Term. It might be nice for right now. Now, this one isn't this, light. I was going to say, I see what you're <laughs> this one's getting to there. It's definitely not light. I'm seeing this one everywhere mm. at the moment. And this is out next month as well. It's a Pan Mac book. It's called To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara. This is the author of A Little Life, which you've read, haven't you? And yes. loved, didn't you? Well, love is, is – it's so hard going. Yes. Yes. But course. yes, I did love it. Yeah. So a bold, brilliant novel spanning three centuries and three different versions of the American experiment about lovers, family, loss and the elusive promise of utopia. In an alternate version of 1893 America, New York is part of the free states where people may live and love whomever they please, or so it seems. The fragile young sign of a distinguished family resists betrothal to a worthy suitor, drawn to a charming music teacher of no means. In a 1993 Manhattan besieged by the AIDS epidemic, a young Hawaiian man lives with his much older, wealthier partner, hiding his troubled childhood and the fate of his father. And in 2093, in a world riven by plagues and governed by totalitarian rule, a powerful scientist's damaged granddaughter tries to navigate life without him and solve the mystery of her husband's disappearances. Doesn't that sound Mm. massive? It does sound massive. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) what I've read of it so far is that it's even more troubling than A Little Life, which I can hardly imagine. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds epic. Epic. It does sound epic, mm. doesn't it? So that's to paradise and that light and easy going. <laughs> now, oh, I'm excited about this, Jane. Let's announce what our book for March is. Next month, we are reading Marion Key's new book, Again, Rachel. I, I mean, I feel like I say this a lot, but I really don't know when I've been more excited to read a book. <laughs> so this is the sequel to Rachel's Holiday, mm-hmm. which came out in the 90s, like a Ages really ago. long time ago. Yeah. And it actually wasn't my first foray into Marion Keys. I think I read Sushi for Beginners first, mm-hmm. but this is my absolute, no question, favorite Marion Keys book ever. I adored Rachel's Holiday so much. Are you going to read Rachel's Holiday again before we read this? I hadn't thought about it, but yes. I'm wondering if I should as well. Yes. Let's both do that. Yeah. I think that'll help. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. our discussion. <laughs> Woo! Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, here is the blurb for, again, Rachel. Back in the long ago 90s, Rachel Walsh was a mess. But a spell in rehab transformed everything. Life became very good very quickly. These days, Rachel has love, family, a great job as an addiction counselor. She even has gardens. Her only bad habit is a fondness for expensive trainers. But with the sudden reappearance of a man she'd once loved, her life wobbles. She thought she was settled, fixed forever. Is she about to discover that no matter what our age, everything can change? Is it time to think again, Rachel? Mm, (laughs) Exciting. Yeah. So that's our March book. We will have tons of copies in the collection. It's going to be a trending title. So you can grab one at the Cultural Centre. So grab a copy, get Rachel's Holiday if you've never read it before, and read along with us. Bye. Bye. I'm just not going to refer to any dates, times, <laughs> anything. I'm not going to say, oh, how's that COVID going? Because next <laughs> month it could not. be an absolute dumpster fire of a month. Who knows? Let's Me announce what our book for March is. I forgot what it's called. <laughs> Rachel. What is that? Rachel again? Again, Rachel. Again, Rachel. Welcome to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was like, no, uh, I can say it. I can watch Jane do that with her jaw and not crack up. <laughs> sorry. Just loosening up. <laughs> okay. Okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Welcome to Literary Anything, our Mary. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay.